Hello and welcome to another installment of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today on the podcast, we're welcoming back Professor Nina Ergen, an associate professor in the Department of Archaeology and History of Art at Koch University in Istanbul. Nina, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we talked about in our last podcast, uh, Nina is an Islamic art historian, uh, but today we're expanding the definition of art a little bit to talk about soundscape. Um, now, Nina, in your last episode, we dealt with some of the ways in which digital tools can enhance our analysis of, uh, I mean, in our case, it was hammams in Ottoman Istanbul, but all sorts of uh, ways of visualizing uh, historical data. And I guess another subset of this, these digital tools would, or digital opportunities, we could say, is... Uh, that digital technology allows us to work more with not only images, but also sound. I know that, you know, just as uh, digital cameras made it really easy for people to take pictures of all kinds of stuff, such as cats and food, which is mostly what people take pictures of, I guess, you could also record things. And uh, we had actually, in a previous episode that I've, we've talked about, um, done soundscape recordings in Istanbul and talked about the history that's embedded in those recordings uh, in the present, uh, in a former episode of the podcast, uh, which is easy enough to do, but I mean, I'm really curious what you're going to be able to tell us today because we're going to talk about studying sound that no longer exists or not in the form that we know it. We're going to talk about past soundscapes. I mean, this is a really innovative uh, approach to any topic in Ottoman history to think about you know, even visual culture, art history is innovative in, in, in some way. Uh, you know, Ottoman historians tend to be very textual, but here we're talking about sound. How can we study sound in the Ottoman past? How can we study Ottoman sounds? Well, this is actually, this comes out uh, of a field uh, uh, or a subfield of anthropology that's called sensory anthropology, um, which is, can very often be paired with sensory history. And uh, so this field emerged in the 1990s, and uh, there are uh, certain ways and means in which you can figure out how the past sounded. So, for example, you go through texts, through source texts, specifically looking for references to, that may be music, that may be speeches, that can be sermons, practices, social practices like clapping, um, or um, you know, loud reactions of crowds and, okay. and, and the yeah. like, um, or references to you know natural sounds as well. And so, so it, it's sort of a creative reading of the source, trying to reconstruct the sensory experience exactly to understand the sounds. I mean, that's simple enough in theory, but uh, how how in in practice are historians using this to make to draw new conclusions about of history what what does this approach tell us that uh our conventional and a little bit tired uh you know literary reading we could call it uh does um i mean first of all uh, i think what happens very often with very text-centered history is that we kind of forget we, we are talking about human beings that mm -hmm. lived in the past and that you know the their, their sensory experiences, their everyday life experiences, their bodily experiences will also have shaped the way that they acted, the way that they thought. Now, the Ottomans were very good of collapsing sort of the experiences of peasants and so forth into tax registers. Yeah. Um, 
like of rural areas and so forth. And then we historians take these texts and create other texts out of that. And very often sort of the human dimension gets, mm -hmm. gets lost with that. So um, while it may not necessarily be possible to sort of... Uh, uh, reconstruct the sensory world of, of peasants, uh, like let's say in the 16th century Ottoman Empire, there are other parts of, of Ottoman life worlds that we, where we can actually find sources that tell us quite a great deal about the soundscapes that um, Ottomans would have experienced. Well, that actually reminds me a bit of the approach of environmental history, where you take a look at the landscape, the geography, start to understand people's relationship with that geography, and then you know, reconstruct uh, uh, how they're operating in a particular environment, and, and sound is indeed a, a sort of like oral environment in the sense of auditory environment, I guess. So in the remainder of our podcast, we're going to be talking about a few pieces of work that Professor Aragon has done on uh, the issue of historical soundscapes. We're going to talk first about um, Quran recitation and the soundscape of the Ottoman mosque. Uh, and we'll also be talking about uh, reconstructing uh, women's soundscapes in the Ottoman Empire, which is going to be uh, a fascinating discussion for those who are following our ongoing series on gender in the Ottoman and post-Ottoman world. Alhamdulillah, 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 الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله. نشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ولا نظير له ولا مثال له. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Graydon speaking with Professor Nina Aragin about historical soundscapes. Uh, the short clip you just heard is actually a recording of a Quran recitation. That's reading out loud uh, of Quranic text. Nina, would you tell us a little bit about uh, what we just heard? Um, sure. The, uh, this clip and sort of uh, similar others that are actually available on, on the internet um, were uh, outcome of um, sort of a, a research study uh, conducted jointly by the Technical University of Denmark and Yildiz Technik University between 2000 and 2003. The project name was CHARISMA, which uh, is a, sort of an acronym for the Conservation of Acoustical Heritage by the revival and identification of Sinan's mosque acoustics. Um, <laughs> and uh, what they did was uh, to do recordings in the mosques and then actually, um, based on measurements that they did there, um, create acoustic models so that you can, uh, in fact, then uh, reconstruct how Quran recitation would have sounded originally. Why would you do this? I mean, this is fascinating what they've done here. You can check it out on the website, odion.dk. We've got a link in the blog. But why? What was the point of these acoustic experiments? Um, I think uh, in, in that respect, it was really a more technical interest. Uh -huh. um, uh, and also sort of in, in, in new aspects of, of Mimar Sinan's heritage. I mean, there has been more attention paid to that now, for example, with the last uh, renovation of the Suleimania completed in 2010, more um, attention was given to specific acoustical devices that Mimar Sinan himself actually used in the mosque, and that previous restorations had actually kind of uh, rendered unusable. <laughs> Uh, this is a very interesting way of thinking about buildings. I mean, in, in conventional, like, 
sort of like grade school level history. The only example I can think of where this is really discussed is, of course, amphitheaters, where the acoustic aspects are so obvious. But what you're telling us is that we can look at a building that exists today and infer things about its past uh, soundscape, even though the, the world that once existed around that soundscape is gone. Exactly. That's a, that's a fascinating approach to buildings. It reminds me of a, a previous podcast we did with Hegnar Wattenpah about um, architecture in Aleppo during uh, the, the early modern period, essentially, and, and, and mosques and how uh, the Ottoman state attempted to project all sorts of uh, symbols and, and, and power into cities of newly conquested Arab provinces and other parts of the empire through uh, visual elements uh, and through conspicuous building projects in cities, building projects such as mosques. Um, so Nina, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that translate into the, translates into the auditory realm. Mm -hmm. uh, if, 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 if you're saying that Sinan is building his mosques with, a, with not just an eye to its design, but an ear to what it will sound like, presumably that's also part of this imperial equation. Exactly. So, I mean, we, we, as you said, we think of mosques primarily as sort of like these visual symbols of power, mm -hmm. but um, the way in which they really actually worked, we also should think of them almost like a theatrical stage for Quran recitation. Okay. Now, when you go to a mosque today, you may not really hear um, any recitation unless you go, you know, somewhere around prayer time or on specific occasions, but um, we know from the sources, like endowment deeds that listed who worked in the mosque uh, and what exactly they did, that Ottoman mosques were not silent spaces, but there would be almost constant Quran recitation of different verses at different times, and um, also sort of a sonic background of, of practices like um, so-called muhellils, who would mm -hmm. use a prayer beads that would go click, 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 mm -hmm to constantly recite uh, the Shahada. I mean, you just made a very interesting point that, that mosques today generally, even though they are in use, are for the most part quiet. You know, you can attest to that. You walk into a mosque in Istanbul off prayer time. It's pretty quiet in there. Uh, it made me think of uh, something that I've kind of discovered through conversations with Nir Shafir, a, a mutual uh, friend of ours whose uh, research on reading um, is, is very fascinating the way he looks at the different types of reading that mm -hmm. exist, right? So we think of reading as looking at a book and presumably thinking about it in your head. I, I'm not sure it's theorized in, in, in layman's terms, but, but, but in the Ottoman context, there are many different types of reading. Of course, Quran, if we look at the, the origin of the word, it's um, to, be, to, to read out loud, yeah, really. It's, it's not... It's meant to be recited. It's meant to be recited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's different than you know, maybe, I don't want to simplify it, but a Protestant understanding of the text is something that you read and contemplate. Uh, in, in Nier's research, I know he looks at different types of reading, the, either like deep reading, analytical reading, or reading from memorization and all of these things. And so, I mean, we can see how, you know, a cultural shift has occurred from the Ottoman period to the present that makes those mosques silent. But was there something specific about the Ottoman period that set a new trajectory for Quran recitation or, or, or made the soundscape of the mosque different from what might have been found in a Mamluk mosque? Or um, Well, I mean, Quran recitation happened uh, pretty much, uh, you know, in all mosques and also in tombs, not to forget, so that the deceased could sort of uh, receive the blessings mm -hmm. that the Quran recitation would bestow upon them. 
I can't necessarily speak to uh, very much to areas outside um, of the Ottoman Empire. Um, because my research expertise, uh -huh. obviously, is more uh, with, with Turkish language documents. Um, I mean, but, you know, surahs like Yasin, which is considered the heart of the Quran, because it concerns sort of the central doctrine, would have been recited everywhere. That's, for, that's certain. I mean, Ottomans are building all of these uh, mosques in a certain style, in a certain image, uh, are they using Quran recitation for a specific purpose in that same way? You're saying this is an integral part of the space. Is it tied to that imperial ideology in any way? Absolutely. I mean, uh, there is one very specific example, for example, for, this, uh, for the Suleimania Mosque, um, where uh, a specific Quran verse was uh, chosen that ends sort of with the statement that, um, you know, uh, God gives more power to some people than to others. Mm. And that, you know, you should accept that. Well, I mean, this is clearly a reference to the Sultan um, as, as sort of a powerful and divinely appointed ruler then. And so this is kind of being repeated, the surah is being repeated throughout the day? What is the... Uh, in this case, we can't be quite sure. Mm -hmm. um, while it is possible to sort of uh, reconstruct a schedule Mm -hmm. based on the endowment deed. For this specific instance, um, we, the endowment deed only says, and 41 reciters are responsible for reciting this. So we don't know whether these 41 reciters recited this sort of one after another throughout okay. the entire day so that it would be repeated constantly. Uh -huh. And I'm sure that would have been sort of really etched into your <laughs> yeah. memory if you spend any length of time in the, in the mosque or if they recited at the same time together, that would then also it be would interesting. have been very loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's a large number of reciters either way. So do you have a sense of the, of the extent to which, you know, this is clearly a government-sponsored or, or, uh, or, you know, a coordinated effort to fund the constant recitation of the Quran. Absolutely. So is this, is this specific to a certain period in Ottoman history that we can point to? I mean, it, it seems that sort of by the 16th century, this was a very entrenched tradition. Um, just to give you a number, in the Suleimania Mosque itself, just in the mosque, not in the complex, because there were more parts where recitation happened, there were 174 reciters that would recite every single day. Um, now, we know that this went all the way up to the 19th century, in some cases into the early 20th century, until um, sort of the, the decline of the endowments, um, sort of the economic difficulties made mm -hmm. it impossible to hire that many people or to employ that many people. Um, and then obviously with um, sort of the establishment of the Republic, all of these endowments uh, were if not dissolved, then restructured in such a way that there was no money for these types of oh, things. That's interesting. So maybe a more political economy argument for why we no longer have so much recitation going on. You in could certainly say so. Than, oh, that's yeah. very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so in the, in, in the descriptive sources that we have, anecdotes and whatnot, I don't know, Evliya Chalabi or these types of typical sources, do people comment upon uh, these acoustic or auditory aspects uh, of Ottoman mosques, or is this just implicit? I mean, in many cases, it's implicit. Um, maybe it was such a such a matter of course that you know it was not very much talked about. Um, 
I mean, where we can certainly get a very rich picture of this almost, again, we can almost talk of an industry of recitation, mm -hmm. is through the specific endowment deeds of every mosque, right. through the Wakufnames. Because there, there is a great deal of information about you know, the how, what the quality of the recital was supposed to be like, when they were supposed to recite, what they were supposed to recite. Um, and there you find these kinds of statements like, oh, the, the voice of the recital should be soul-caressing and heart-captivating mm -hmm. and so forth. So it's, it's actually interesting that in, from, from documents that are usually mined for kind of numerical data or, or sort of economic data that you can find these kind of aesthetic statements mm. as well. And I guess if we combine these documents with a little imagination and maybe reconstruct a... Sinan's acoustics, as we heard from the Odeon DK project, uh, that indeed we can uh, start to get at uh, some of uh, the soundscapes of these uh, architectural spaces uh, in the Ottoman Empire and, and take a new view of art history, as it were. <laughs> Okay, welcome back. We're talking to Professor Nina Ergin from Coach University about uh, historical soundscapes in the Ottoman Empire. We just talked about a different way of approaching art and architectural history by looking at the uh, auditory aspects or the by reconstructing the sonic aspects of uh, architectural spaces. Um, we're going to move on a little bit to another way of looking at soundscapes, actually talking about gender, because you know one of the common themes in the study of space is, is that of gendered space spaces that are gender segregated or where people are performing specific gender roles in specific spaces uh, and so Nina you also have some research uh, on uh, the soundscapes of, of women's spaces in the Ottoman Empire I mean we do have a a pretty substantial literature on how uh, gender affected architecture, even arguments about how it affected the layout of cities. But again, this is all based on the visual, secluding women from uh, certain spaces or certain gays and restricting them to areas where they couldn't be seen in certain cases or would be seen in a, a proper context. How does this uh, fit in with, the, with your study of sound? it actually helps to refine these concepts of, um, of women's spaces because, uh, as you said, you know, we think of space as something very visual and visually bounded, but only because you can't see or you cannot be seen, that doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot hear or be heard. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just think of... Um, um, for example, I mean, that's probably more uh, relevant to, to uh, Arab cities where you have this so-called mashrabiya, this uh, um, cage-like con contraption in front of windows. So people cannot look inside the house. They cannot see the women inside the house. But a woman could very well hear what was going on out on the street um, and could, you know, stay current and updated on whatever was going on in the city in, in, in that way. Right, and, and so she's not only 
not secluded from the, the world, the public uh, space and what's going on, but also, I mean, there's a potential for contact there, right? To, to speak to others without being seen. Exactly. I mean, this is a theme in some romantic literature from the 19th and early 20th century of women maybe singing behind a wall or from like within the house to their lover. Maybe they don't actually make any physical or visual contact, but communicate in that form. Think of Cyrano de Bergerac, for example. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. so what does this tell us about uh, spaces uh, in, in Ottoman cities? I mean, it probably means that uh, women had a lot more um, access to, to gathering information than we give them credit at this point, uh, especially elite women who were secluded. Um, mm -hmm. Well, when we look at the highest elite, we, I mean, people generally think about harem women as sort of being locked away and not having access to power and so forth. But specifically with the harem of the, of the top couple palace, we have the Imperial Council Hall right next to the harem, and you have this wonderful window where the Sultan would sit behind and listen in on the council meeting. Well, most people don't know that harem women also had access to that window, and so just like the Sultan, they could sit behind that screen, that screened window, and listen in on, on you know, political decisions, and we even have um, sort of chroniclers telling us of instances where women would speak up and mm -hmm. tell the viziers that they were not pleased with their decisions. And so presumably this means that, uh, for example, while women wouldn't be present in that sort of court setting, uh, the secluded spaces that nonetheless have auditory access to that setting uh, actually facilitate women's participation uh, in, in these political processes. Uh. Exactly. Um, I mean, you know, if it was the other way around, if they would have been visible, like let's say behind a glass window, but could not make themselves heard, that may have actually been, uh, or so given them less power, less access to power. So the oral may be much more powerful than the visual in that oh, that's sense. That's a very, that's a very uh, interesting addition to sort of the, the the newer literature on the imperial harem, right? The the um, perspectives may be embodied by the 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 research of Leslie Pierce mm -hmm. uh, on the power that women wielded behind uh, the palace walls at various points in time in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, and these walls were permeable by sound. Okay, we're back on Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton talking with Professor Nina Ergin about her research on historical soundscapes. She's got a number of articles uh, that are out or coming out on the subject. You can find those uh, on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we have a bibliography related uh, to today's subject. And Nina, thank you for, for being here and sharing this uh, new field of study 
at least for Ottoman historians, with us today. It's my pleasure. I mean, um, you know, to refer back to uh, the the episode I did with Emily about Istanbul's historical soundscapes uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, our listeners actually just heard a little recording. It sounded like some steps and little, maybe some quiet mumbling and, and sounds of this nature. That's actually a recording that Emily did uh, at the Topkapa Palace in Istanbul, where she attempted to replicate uh, what is known to be uh, what was at the time uh, a silent space. And she found that very difficult. And that ties in pretty nicely with uh, one of your ongoing pieces of research about uh, the role of silence at the Topkapa Palace. Maybe you could open that up a little for us. Mm-hmm. Um- uh, so one thing that also uh, goes back to uh, at the beginning, you asked me how to get sort of at soundscape elements uh, from from historical sources, is that when I was reading about the Top Kappa Palace um, in in ambassadors' uh, accounts, something that is always being mentioned is this wonderment at so how many people standing silently during the ceremonies. And so I, I basically took it from there and, and, and tried to figure out, you know, why, why silence um, as, as such an important element in, in sort of imperial image making and, and display mm-hmm. of power. Um, and I mean, I think I can argue for a number of things there. Um, first of all, uh, Silence is kind of intercultural. Everybody understands if you can silence someone, mm-hmm. you have power over them. Okay. And so these ambassadors may not have been able to speak Turkish or Arabic or Persian enough to understand maybe some kind of a speech by the Grand Vizier, um, but they would have understood the concept of silence. Mm-hmm. Um, Moreover, uh, you mean like reverent silence? In exactly, that case. sort of a, a silence that is imposed uh, on on all the janissaries that are lined up um, during a reception of an ambassador, mm-hmm. during um, like a bayram celebration, during a religious holiday, etc. Um, so that would have been very clearly understood. Also, we have to uh, consider that. Uh, this was an, an age before electronic communications. Mm-hmm. There were no microphones. Uh, there were no loudspeakers. Right. And so the, the, the specific space in the top couple palace where all of these receptions happen is actually quite large. So how do you make sure that every single person within that space actually hears yeah. this specific sonic element that is supposed to convey power? You may not be able to hear speech that far, Mm-hmm. unless it's amplified, but you will hear silence if it's maintained everywhere. Right. Uh-huh. So that was actually, you know, kind of, you can think of that as, as a means of mass communication. Um, silence as an expression of, of power. power. Yeah. Uh, how does this tie in with the fact that, you know, I guess many of the staff in, in, the, in the palace or in the harem were, were mutes that... Uh, you know, essentially couldn't talk or hear anything. Um, yes, uh, that ties in very nicely. I mean, this was something uh, that went together with this notion of, of silence or sort of a very controlled soundscape. I mean, we know that this this practice originated in the reign of, of Suleiman the Magnificent in the 16th century when two mute brothers were brought to the court and they were able to... Um, communicate with each other through a sign language that they had invented among themselves. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, we know, of course, from early modern courts, even medieval courts, that there were these um, human beings that had some kind of a special feature, like hunchbacks or dwarves, etc., that were kept at court almost like pets. And so these two mute brothers were first introduced as such, but then out of that came the, um, uh, the tradition to teach sign language to even those court members who could actually speak. Oh, mm -hmm. so, so as to keep a controlled sonic environment around the person of the sultan. Is this related at all to any understandings of health? I know that, like, for example, music or pleasant music was, was used in healing institutions in the Ottoman Empire. There's some, some research on that. Is there some sense that you know, silence is important for the, uh, uh, the sultan to you know, maintain a good head? Is this something that comes up in the sources? Uh, no, not necessarily. But, uh, I mean, we can think, of course, that the sultan was always sort of in this, if you will, kind of a bubble of a controlled environment. Okay. He would, uh, there would always be sort of a reverent silence around him to the point where, you know, people could, there were very few people who were allowed to approach him and speak to him. Um, he would always be perfumed. The spaces through which he would move would be perfumed. Okay. The, the clothes that he would wear would, of course, be of the finest quality, so probably nothing scratchy or unpleasant. And, and sort of this controlled soundscape mm -hmm. around him is certainly part of that. <laughs> I mean, and when you tie it in with the, uh, you know, the issue of power, of using silence as a means of projecting power, you start to find a very uh, you know, interesting texture of how um, uh, power relations are, are embedded in the sensory environment. It actually reminds me of a conversation we had with Avner Wischnitzer, an extremely interesting a piece of research he did on temporal culture, he calls it, in the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how bureaucrats and how, of course, the sultan would use the ability to essentially, you know, I could say, bend time uh, to wield power over people. Essentially, that means making people wait to see them. Exactly. And the amount of time that you make someone wait or you take from their time, uh, it, it, it gives a sort of, uh, it projects a sort of... Uh, sense of superiority or meaning of power uh, uh, inculcates a sense of reverence and obedience uh, to that authority figure. I mean, it, it really makes me want to go out and learn more about these other aspects of sensory environment. You know, in the past, the way you've done here with sound, you could do it, as you, you've already mentioned here, scent. Exactly. Uh, you know, our, our friends who study food history will obviously have mm -hmm. a field day with, with this subject. And, and, you know, we talked about time, probably movement. There's lots of other sort of sensory aspects of uh, the past that might, that, that might tell us something and anyway give us a, a more vivid picture of what the Ottoman world was like. Most certainly. You know, I'd like, to, I'd like to have a series on our podcast about such like sensory history. I don't know exactly what we call it. Maybe you mentioned sensory anthropology. So building on that somehow, I know it's a small field in Ottoman studies, but maybe with time as we go on, we'll be able to uh, work with our friends who are art historians or cultural historians to, to do such a thing. Uh, and anyway, I really appreciate you presenting all these different pieces of research on the podcast today and sharing them with us. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. And 
For those who want to learn more about uh, what we've been talking about today, to get access to some of Professor Nina Aragon's articles uh, on historical soundscapes, uh, we do have that bibliography on our website. You'll also find links to our, our series, our thematic uh, series related to different topics in the history of the Ottoman Empire, as well as our former episode with Nina Aragon about uh, hammams in Ottoman Istanbul, which if you haven't heard, I really recommend it. Uh, on our website, you'll find a space to leave comments and questions, get access to our Facebook page where you'll find uh, 20,000 other Ottoman history enthusiasts to argue and uh, chat with about various topics in our podcast uh, and stay uh, abreast of the latest developments on the site and the release of new episodes. I want to thank you all for tuning in, listening with us today. I hope you'll join us next time. And until then, please take care. Bye.